This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Now, maybe you can't afford that full-size E30 M3 or that rare 71 Nissan Skyline GTR. And that's probably okay, because your garage is already chock full of other projects, and you've been turning so many wrenches, your knuckles look like they belong to a prize fighter. The last thing you need to do is muck about with another old car. And that's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars from manufacturers like Amalgam, Auto Art, Mini Champs, and others. They stock 143rd scale and 118th scale offerings. From streetcars to race machines, from pre-war classics to brand spanking new cars, Model Citizen Diecast has something for just about every interest and price range. Shop their online catalog at ModelCitizenDieCast.com or check out their Instagram page at Model Citizen Diecast. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you far and wide, listening from places like Baldwin, Pennsylvania, Hialeah, Florida, Chicago, Illinois, Tucson, Arizona, Guangdong, China, Brisbane, Australia, Bucharest, Romania, and London, England. And that's just a few of the places that you're listening from. Well, I got to tell you, I'm having a busy autumn, and I just can't get to it all. I have a motorcycle that I need to get ready for auction. I have a Land Rover restoration project that's been sitting for far too long, and I'm talking years. And right now I'm hunting for a Porsche 911 SC. I always wanted one, and I think it's about time. But all that stuff is sort of on the back burner right now because this podcast has become a big part of my life. And I'm not complaining. I love what I'm doing. And there are some episodes in the can that I think you're going to enjoy, and I'm in the process of booking more interviews for the future. And I'm always working on new storytelling episodes. But what all this means is that I'm actually running a little bit behind on my production schedule. Now, my goal is to release a new episode each week, but I really need to play catch-up. So I'm taking a little break next week, and Horsepower Heritage will return on Wednesday, November 18th. Be sure to sign up for notifications on your phone so you don't miss out. And going down the road, you can pretty much plan on hearing a new episode each week. And if not, I will always let you know about changes in the schedule. Just a quick reminder, please give the show a five-star rating and take a minute to leave me a review. Every rating and review helps boost the reach of the show. And don't forget to tell your friends about it, and I really appreciate your support. All right. Well, it was only a matter of time that we talked about flying and airplanes here. I've always loved aviation myself, so if you're a Warbird fan, you're going to love today's show. My guest is Mark Foster. Mark is a lifelong gearhead from dirt bikes to Ferraris, and he's been a general aviation pilot for many years. Mark is the president of the Lion Air Museum in Orange County, California. He's an incredibly humble guy, and he's very enthusiastic about aviation and auto racing, and just mechanical stuff in general. And we had a great time. We talked about flying, aircraft restoration, historic warbirds, Mark's own car collection, and of course, the museum. And by the way, if you're located in Southern California and you're looking to set up a cool day trip with a group of your car or motorcycle friends, you should definitely call the Lion Air Museum and arrange a visit. The people there are terrific, and they love to have groups come by to see the collection. It's a fantastic tribute to the American air crews of World War II, and it's a reminder of just how much they sacrificed for future generations. You can check them out at 
lionairmuseum.org. By the way, that's L-Y-O-N, or on Instagram, at lionairmuseum. Also, this episode is on my YouTube channel. Just search for Horsepower Heritage and subscribe, and you can check out all the cool airplanes that we talk about here. So, without further ado, I give you my interview with Mark Foster, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Let's hit it. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick. Thanks for joining us. Today we're at the Lion Air Museum in Orange County, California. And um, since we're on an airport, uh, you will hear some jet noise from time to time on the audio. We're going to try to work around that. But uh, this is a fantastic facility. Uh, it houses a, an incredible collection of World War II aircraft, uh, automobiles, motorcycles, military vehicles. And my guest today is the president of the Lion Air Museum, Mark Foster. Mark, thanks for joining us. So I said how impressive this place was, and I mean, there's just something to look at everywhere. Yeah, well, you know, our focus here is on the World War II aviation history, uh, but then we tie in with a lot of the automobiles, military vehicles, and motorcycles, as you mentioned, uh, and we really start with the story of World War II, kind of starts at the close of World War I. So we, we, we start there and then we go up through what we call the greatest generation. And those were the people who, you know, kind of came of age during the World War II period, the, the late 30s and early 40s. And we go right up through their service, which was the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And so that's kind of what we cover here throughout the museum. Right. And you've been here, what, 12 years? Yeah, we, uh, we opened the museum in officially at the end of 09. But your involvement in aviation, you've had a long career, a lifetime in aviation. Yeah, yeah. I started in high school, I think, is when I, I found aviation. And I found aviation through my car and motorcycle buddies. And they pointed me towards aviation. So that's how I ended up stumbling into aviation and, and got hooked like so many people do. And, uh, and that was in the, you know, the mid-80s. And so now we're you know, 35 years later and still playing with airplanes. I think we've got a... 737 outbound. Yeah, I was actually going to ask which came first, cars and motorcycles or, or airplanes. And I find it's usually cars and motorcycles. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's the easiest thing to access when you're a kid. And sure. so uh, I started in three wheelers, and then uh, uh, when I was 15 and a half, I, I was able you know, to get your, your driver's learner permit or whatever. And most of my friends were riding skateboard, skateboards and bicycles, and I was able to get a, uh, a dual-purpose enduro-type motorcycle that I could ride on the street and in the dirt. And so, uh, so I was just, I felt like I was on cloud nine. I had this total freedom that so many other of my friends at the time didn't, maybe just because I was a couple months older than they were. And, uh, and so it really started with all of that. Did you live in a place where you had like access to trails pretty quickly? Yeah, I grew up in, uh, in Glendora, California, just sure. east of, of Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, we had Glendora Mountain Road, which is a great road to drive, you know, to ride on. And then there was a lot of little dirt trails and stuff around as well. And then if we were always going out in the desert and, 
And then, um, you know, we, we were going to the dirt race tracks around like Riverside International Raceway at the time had dirt track as well. And so we did a lot of off-road racing at places like Riverside and Carlsbad and, and uh, you know, all those kind of places. So I uh, really got into it pretty heavily there when I was, you know, before I was really even an adult. And then not long after that, you kind of got exposed to aviation. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mentioned I had uh, some friends who were, you know, car, uh, car and motorcycle uh, guys, and and so one of them worked out at a place out in Chino Aviation Museum, and he kept telling me, you know, you got to come and check out this place. And he told me for like a couple of years, and I just finally one day I worked at a race car shop. I was doing like fabrication stuff at a race car shop. I was in high school, junior in high school, and and uh, there was no work that day, and so I hopped on my motorcycle and I rode out to this place and and just instantly fell in love with these airplanes. You know, I, I don't know if you watch uh, movies like uh, Baba Black Sheep, you know, the Black Sheep Squadron, sure. Happy Boynton, all sure. that back in the 70s. Uh, well, the, the, one of the Corsairs that they used in the filming of that uh, TV series was there at this museum, the actual airplane that they used. And, you know, I walked up to it and I didn't know it was so big and, you know, on TV they looked smaller and I, I just couldn't believe how awesome these things were. And, and the thing that really got me, because I was a car guy at that point, is that these old airplanes, they had internal superchargers. They were, some of them were turbocharged. They had all this technology that I thought was, you know, things that we were putting on cars in the 70s and 80s or something and had no idea that in the 30s and 40s these airplanes were just doing it already. And so that really, you know, was, it was interesting to me. So I just, I went home and at the time, you know, there's no internet or anything. We had an encyclopedia at home, like one of those big ones that was A through Z and it would all fit like in this much. And I went through and I was trying to find anything I could on airplanes and I went to the bookstore and I bought, you know, books on stuff and tried to learn as much as I could and soon started volunteering to, to help with the airplanes, like re restoring the airplanes. Um, started with that and, you know, next thing I know it became a vocation for quite a few years. So getting in there and doing the restoration work had to expose you also to some guys who had flown those planes uh, in combat? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. You know, growing up in that time, the the World War II veterans were still fairly young. They were still out there. Some of them were still working. And so I got to meet a lot of guys who were, you know, fighter aces of World War II. And, uh, and there's still a few around, but not as many. Um, but so that, that had an influence on me. So I felt like I was kind of in the right place for all that. Sure. And uh, so I got to spend a lot of time with them and learn from, from them. I think that was a really important time period in my life to be able to learn from those guys. Well, that's what's cool about a place like this. You know, you're pre preserving that history. By the way, are, are all the planes airworthy? Yeah, all the airplanes in uh, Lion Air Museum are airworthy. However, we don't fly all of them. We don't keep all of them on a, an active flight status. So right now we have four airplanes that are uh, that are airworthy and flown regularly. The the B twenty five right behind us here um, is. Uh, is the newest to add. It hadn't flown for a few years and we're just getting ready to fly it again and it'll be the fourth one. Right. Um, and then we fly, you know, do some local air shows, but mostly, you know, just to do demonstrations here and, you know, and right. give rides and so forth. Yeah. I'll just go through a few of the aircraft. So uh, behind me is a uh, DC-3 uh, in American Airlines livery. Mm -hmm. And is that an original American Airlines? Uh, uh, it is not. That airplane was uh, was born as a C-47A, which okay. is the cargo version of the airliner. The airliner came first and then the cargo version. So that one was built in 1942. Um, that one saw service as a cargo and paratrooper airplane, uh, even on D-Day. Mm. So it was a D-Day airplane, D-Day survivor. 
um, and then it was converted more toward an airliner configuration later on. And then we chose, when we, when we acquired the airplane in, I want to say it was 2008, late 2008, uh, we chose to put an American Airlines uh, livery because uh, of General Lyon, our founders, um, uh, association with American Airlines. Right. And we're going to talk more about General Lyon later on in the show. It's a great subject. Absolutely. Uh, and then next to the DC-3 is a C-47 uh, with invasion stripes, wearing mm -hmm. invasion stripes. And uh, is there a... a yeah, there's a little story there, and, it, and it, it is closely tied to the DC-3 that we just spoke about. The C-47 was built in 1944, and when we got the airplane, it was in uh, Israeli markings from the Israelis operated it in their um, defense force. Uh, and, and, and we had been really this, the first active civilian owner of the aircraft. So we got it and we were like, okay, we want to paint it up in some sort of World War II markings. And we started to research and everything. And we were unable to find any pictures of that airplane in combat, but we know that it went over to Europe in, in World War II, uh, in 44 sometime. Uh, and then we know that it stayed there after the war and it stayed with the French for a period of time. And then the French um, transitioned it to the uh, Israelis. Uh, and then it went into the civilian market to us. So we really didn't have a lot of history on it, but while we were doing that research, we found a lot of other sources of other serial number airplanes. So I thought, well, let's just look at the, the C-47A, the one that's now in American Airlines markings, and we found that airplane listed, and that's when we learned that it, was, it participated in D-Day. It was uh, based at Exeter Field in England and flew with the 440th Troop uh, Carrier uh, Squadron. And so it was, a, it was a really exciting thing, but we had already put the, the airliner in airliner markings. So we thought, well, let's put the C-47 in the markings of the other airplane. Why not? So those two airplanes kind of have a tie because when you look at the C-47, it's exactly what the C-47A, the DC-3, would have looked like back when it flew in, in combat during World War II. Interesting. Yeah. And then the next plane over, uh, just over Mark's right shoulder, is a B-25 Mitchell, uh, medium bomber, mm -hmm. and um, any. What's the story behind this plane? Uh, well, this airplane, uh, you know, it was it was built toward the end of the war, and it, it did fly a bit, but mostly like in the Aleutian Islands, mm -hmm. uh, you know, more you know, uh, you know, kind of air patrol kind of stuff, um, not, uh, not any combat, you know, it wasn't dropping bombs or anything like that. That's why some of the airplanes still exist, because they had a fairly safe, uh, you know, uh, uh, life back then. But, uh, but, you know, great airplane, you know, uh, probably one of the most historic of the, the, the medium bombers, you know, and you think of like the Doolittle raid that took place in 1942, and where they took 16 of these airplanes, and they launched them off an aircraft carrier, and they're never built to fly off of an aircraft carrier, but they lightened them up and, and craned them aboard the, the aircraft carrier and set sail for Japan. And the idea was to, to use these airplanes to send a message to the Japanese that, that we could reach them. It wasn't that they could just reach our facilities like at Pearl Harbor, but we could reach them in their homeland. And it was, it was more of a morale thing than anything, um, but uh, ultimately became quite a successful mission, even though at the time it was thought a failure because uh, a lot of the airplanes were lost and, and some of the crew members were lost and, and so forth. But uh, Well, and two, they knew that that was going to be a one-way trip. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it got even more so when... When they were spotted early, you know, the, the, the USS Hornet was spotted by a Japanese ship 
when they were still too far away from when they could launch. And they thought, well, we've been spotted. We either scrub the mission or we, we launch anyway. And they launched anyway, knowing that they weren't gonna have enough fuel on the other side after dropping their, their bombs in, in Tokyo and going on into China. They wouldn't, they wouldn't really make it where they needed to go. So a lot of them were bailing out along the, along the, the shore there. And so Jimmy Doolittle at the time thought, wow, you know, I just led a terrible mission. And then they started looking at it and they go, wow, not only did it increase our morale, but then think of what it did to the, to the Japanese at that time. And we needed to do that. We needed to show them that, uh, that we, could, you strike know, back. we could strike back. And so it kind of evened the playing field a little bit. I actually flew to Japan and interviewed three Japanese veterans who were on the Pearl Harbor mission. Wow. They were all in their late 90s. Yeah. And it's not easy to get these guys. I had to email back and forth to a Japanese contact for like two months. Wow. And the, here's the interesting thing. He kept saying things like, this is very difficult to do. And I would respond back, thank you, I appreciate that, and I know you're doing your best to help us out, and please let me know if you have any news. And this went on for a while. And finally, one day, he said, it is arranged. And he gave me the names of the three guys we're gonna interview. And the whole time I'm thinking, okay, well this was great uh, communication. <laughs> but it wasn't, my, one of my colleagues told me, he, he said, no, when he was telling you in those emails, this is very difficult, that's their way of saying no. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't understand that, so I didn't take no for an answer. And it's just funny how communication works and our social etiquette in different cultures mm -hmm varies yeah it's it's interesting that you you say that because we did a, a trip in 1995 we took two airplanes a p-51 mustang and a japanese zero fighter uh to japan to do air shows with mm -hmm. them and it hadn't been done you know really ever with the mustang and the and the zero flying together and it was flying as friends fly as friends right. air show right. and uh, so we went over there and we had to you know disassemble the airplanes put them in a, a container and then ship them over there and then meet them over there and assemble them and you know, run them and all that. And I went over as a mechanic, mm -hmm. and then there was two guys who were flying them. I hadn't flown the P-51 yet, and, uh, and so, but I'd run the stuff and been around it and, and, and so forth and knew the airplanes pretty well. And so we were over there for months in 95. I think I was there for 70-something days uh, in that period, over five trips. So we were going, doing a lot of back and forth. But what you just said there, I mean, you know, there's, it's a different culture, the, the communication. They were wonderful, but never really knew exactly if, if the message you were trying to convey was making it. You know, we had right. some good interpreters, of course. But one thing that was probably my favorite thing we did there is after one of the air shows, one I remember in particular, we had the Japanese Zero pulled into the, just the front of a hangar and the doors were open and we had a line. They brought us all of these World War II veteran pilots, Japanese pilots, and they all stood in a line and I stood up on the wing and we helped them get into the cockpit, each one of them. And uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a, a range of emotion, you know, watching, you know, some of them got in and they just kind of looked around and they got out and I wasn't even sure if maybe they just got in the wrong line. Like, you know, maybe they had never even sat in a Japanese zero before. And then others got in and they started reading all the, is it kanji, but whatever the writing is on the instrument panels, because that's all authentic in that airplane. And they started reading all that and tears were coming down their, 
their their cheeks, you know, and it was just you could tell they remembered that. And and I even met one guy who had made multiple missions as a kamikaze, which is kind of odd to say, multiple missions as a kamikaze. Well, he kept setting out to attack a ship, and every time he took off, I'm sure people might you know, there's probably some uh, some humor in this, but he would take off. The airplane started running so poorly, he was truly afraid that he would not make it to the target and his life would be wasted by just crashing in route. So he would come back to the base and say, it's not running right. And they thought, oh, well, you're just afraid to go on the mission. He's like, no, I really want to go on the mission, but you got to fix the airplane. And some te- somehow in all this, it was right toward the end and he never went on the final mission with a, a, an operating airplane and he survived and, and to tell that story. And uh, yeah, these were the stories we were hearing, and it was just absolutely incredible. I, I get a little bit of, a, of emotion about these airplanes. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. really special. They really are. Yep. And and there's such a connection to the character of the people who built them, flew them, maintained them, supported them. I mean, you can you can just feel all of that when you're around these airplanes. What did you think of Japan, by the way? Pretty interesting country. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. The food was fantastic. Oh yeah. Um, the hospitality, uh, uh, excellent. Um, it was it was kind of it's kind of funny because we, I'm a very uh, independent person. I like to be on my own schedule all the time, which is just one of my interesting characteristics, I guess. But over there, we were on somebody else's schedule. They would pick us up, they would take us to dinner, they would drop us back at the hotel, they would do all this stuff, they would travel, and they wouldn't really tell us any of this. So we would get in a car and we thought, you know, maybe it's, you know, we're gonna drive 20 minutes to a restaurant. It would be two hours. Wow. And then other times you'd get in a car and you'd hang a U-turn and stop on the other side of the street and get out and go into a restaurant. Like, so, so you never knew, but wherever they took us, it was always fantastic. Well, they wanted to impress you. Yeah, they, they did, when you say impress us, uh, on my last trip, I went one more time in 96 on a, unrelated to the air shows thing, but we actually uh, took a T6 Texan over there and assembled it and checked out someone there, uh, an air show pilot, Japanese air show pilot, and he was going to do air shows with the airplane. So uh, we went over there in 96 and we we're going to be there about a week and there was two of us, uh, a, a friend of mine who's a former F-16 fighter pilot. And uh, so we got there and uh, and they asked us, uh, do we have a international driver's license? And we say, we kind of look at each other and we go, no. And they go, oh, that's okay. And we're thinking, well, of course it's okay. You guys drive us everywhere. What are you talking about? We get to the hotel, and the guy turns around. And he goes, we have Ferrari for you. <laughs> and we go, we go, uh, okay. And so we were there for a week, and they gave us a um, 348 TS, and uh, and they gave that to us for a week to drive. So the two of us, the, uh, you know, my my F-16 fighter pilot buddy friend, and I, just and the airport and the hotel were 45 minutes apart. So every day we had a, you know, it was basically an hour and a half trip in this in this car. But I, just one of those, there's hospitality. You know, they just insisted that we drive this car. And here we were, you know, we're driving on the other side of the road, but still the steering wheel's on the side it's, you know, that we're used to. And so we were always reminding each other when we pull off the road, you know. You know right. <laughs> stay to the left, not to the right. Stay right. to the left, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, great hospitality. They're just wonderful people. Fantastic. Yeah. And then over my right shoulder is an A26 Invader. A26 Invader, and so this was built by Douglas, and and this one is in the the livery or the markings of a um, a Korean air war aircraft, uh, kind of a night attack aircraft. Uh, but these airplanes have history back to World War II. A26 is built by Douglas in, in uh, World War II. 
Korea, and then even in Vietnam. So they were still flying them in Vietnam. Right. So it's one of the few airplanes. I know the C-47 did the same thing, but uh, as a more aggressive airplane to, fl to fly and fight in all three wars. And, and some people get these mixed up with the, the, the B-26, the Marauder. Which was and, a Martin. Which was a Martin, very good, yeah. And then the next plane over is probably, it, it's the most famous bomber of the war, if not the most famous plane. The B-17 Flying Fortress. Yeah, so the, you know, it was a heavy bomber, World War II, you know, it was powered by four big radial engines and, and you know, it would carry typically nine to ten guys into, into, into combat. Um, you know, a lot of these probably made famous during the daylight bombing missions over Germany and uh, where some of the losses were real, you know, really heavy at the time. Um, and it wasn't really until the, the P-51 Mustangs came along in, in, you know, on the calendar there and were able to uh, escort these airplanes all the way to, to Germany and back, and then they started becoming more and more successful. But, but yeah, most famous bomber probably of all time, uh, the B-17 Flying Fortress. Yeah, prior to the Mustang coming into the theater, the, the P-47 did not have the range yeah, yeah. to get that deep. Yeah, they could escort them a, a, a ways toward, right. toward the, the target but they just couldn't stay with them the whole right. time. And they couldn't loiter with them. They just they couldn't do anything, you know. So, so it, was, it was a great airplane, but it just didn't have the range. And the P-51s, of course, you know, right. burning a lot less fuel and a little, you know, and, and nice and fast. And so they could, uh, they could get there and stay with them the whole time. And, and you've flown the Mustang. Uh, yes, I'm one of the, the fortunate people. I still can't believe that, I, that I've gotten to fly P-51s for right. a good period of my life, yeah. We'll talk about that. Um, two more planes to mention. Uh, T6 Texan, is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. World yep. War II. Ad advanced trainer. Advanced yep. trainer, mm -hmm. yeah. And last but not least is the O-1 Bird Dog, which is a Cessna, mm -hmm. and that's your personal aircraft. Yeah, that's my personal airplane, and uh, that's an airplane that was uh, designed in the late 40s, and they used them heavily in, in Korea as observation airplanes, and then again in Vietnam as forward air control airplanes. You know, they were typically unarmed, they had a, a pilot and an observer in them. Uh, they did have uh, these 2.75 inch rockets on the wings that were target marking rockets. So, you know, they would fly low over the, the jungle canopies, let's say in Vietnam, and they would look for, you know, maybe am ammunition stores or whatever by the enemy, and they would mark them with these rockets. They would fire these rockets into this area, and these rockets uh, were white phosphorus. They would put up a colored smoke and then they had all these radios. They could talk to people on the ground, people in the air, and you know, and 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 everybody. And they would say to maybe the fast-moving fighters and bombers, "Okay, hit my smoke." If if they actually hit the target, then they'd say, "Hit my smoke," or they would say, "Hit one click south of my smoke." And so they could use that smoke as a way of a where to drop point. because the fast-moving fighters and bombers they couldn't see that stuff because it was just all jungle, right? So they so right. these guys could see it because they were flying low and slow. Um, so they were really heroes. There was two uh, Medals of Honor winners uh, uh, flying O-1 bird dogs, and so you know it was really quite a quite an airplane. And and that was something I found interest. You know, interesting. It was an all-metal airplane, and I was looking for something that I could uh, I could fly. You know, and 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 something fun. And uh, I, I looked around quite a bit, and I thought you know the bird dog made the most sense. And and at the time, I, I really didn't have a lot of, of savings for such a thing. I, I think I had $5 saved up for an airplane, <laughs> and so I thought that was a good time to buy an airplane. So I found, I looked basically like all over the world. I, I didn't travel the world, but just through, you know, you know, mail and all that kind of stuff. 
And this I, was pre-internet. Uh, this was internet. Okay. You know, but I'm just yeah. I mean you yeah, know ma right. email and people sure. and so forth. And uh, and I ultimately after looking for you know pretty solidly for a couple of years, I, I came across one that was literally a couple hundred yards from my then office. It was in a in a hangar in storage and it had been crashed. And so um, it was it was pretty damaged, you know. And and I, I kept looking at it and. And you know, I thought, no, I don't need that kind of big project. But while I was looking for a project, I was finding where, I, like I like to say, all the bones were buried. You know, dog bones, I guess. And uh, and so I, oh, I know where there's an engine. I know where there's a firewall. I know where there's a right flap. I know where, like, so it just in my head, I had this inventory. And so when I saw this crashed airplane, I thought, you know, this could be this could be a project. So I thought about it for a day or two, and and I went and. And we worked out a deal, and I bought the thing um, uh, on borrowed money, <laughs> and uh, and I spent the next six and a half years of my you know evenings and weekends and holidays and lunch money and and so forth to uh, to restore the airplane. We all have a pretty good idea of what it takes to restore an automobile or a motorcycle, but. Mm -hmm. How do you compare uh, an aircraft restoration? Well, there's there's a lot of regulation in, in aviation, and it's it's you know needfully so that uh, that that exists. Um, and so I, I came from just backing up a little. I, I wasn't just this guy who thought, hey, I think an airplane would be neat. And I'm a car guy. I'll just go buy an airplane. I actually did aircraft restoration at that point for about maybe 10 or 12 years so and it was a lot of the type of damage that was done to the airplane was the type of damage I was restoring you know fixing on other airplanes so I had a pretty good idea of what I was getting myself into um, but but with airplanes everything's documented you know there's a record keeping and and there's steps along the way where an airframe and power plant mechanic may be doing the work and then a inspector authority who's an FAA designee comes in and and certifies the work so to speak like looks over and double checks everything and then there's logbook entries and there's forms that get submitted to the FAA so that there's there's information that kind of follows that airplane of what kind of repairs were done to it that kind of thing and I think there's similarities you know, I think you know you you clean things and you straighten things and you paint them and you use all new hardware and you know and all that kind of stuff. So there, I think there's a lot of similarities in the aircraft restoration. Um, and I'd say the differences are more on like the regulatory side, record keeping and, and so forth. You don't have to sign off a car really for for most part. You're a guy who's living in these sort of two communities: the aviation community and the car community. And I don't know about you, but I think that those communities are really special. What do you think makes them special? Yeah. If if you agree with me, well, I think there's the the passion for you know there's the the machinery. There's a passion for the machinery, but then it's the people and the shared passion. I really think it's the people. You know, car people are just great people. Airplane people are great people. So um, I think if I walked into this hangar every single day and there was no one here, it wouldn't have nearly the the um, impact on me that it does knowing that they're tied to all the people and every every machine has the story of who owned it drove it flew it whatever and then their story so that's always the thing I want to research you know you can take you can take a Carrera you know Porsche Carrera you know a beautiful four cam car and and then when you find out who its owner is or who its previous owner was its caretakers then there's more to the story. You know, you can almost feel that in the car. So, so I, I think that's what it is. There's just so much to the automotive, you know, world, right. uh, the culture, and so much to the aviation community that it's just it's like bigger than life. It's really hard to um, ever get bored with it. 
For me, it's that kind of living history aspect. Old cars and, and motorcycles and airplanes, for that matter, it's about as close as I'm ever going to get to time travel. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've kind of mentioned this in other podcasts episodes it just takes you back and that's really cool yeah it's you know i've had some wonderful opportunities in certain airplanes where you know i'm flying the airplane and i I use airplane car would be the same thing and i'll i'll add to that but where i'm looking through the windscreen down the nose of this airplane that flew in world war ii that's got combat history in world war ii i'm seeing the same thing that 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 young guy who was probably you know in his early to mid 20s in World War II was out in the South Pacific somewhere, you know, looking at that same view. I've chased a Japanese Zero around, you know, an airshow circuit in a Corsair, and the Japanese Zero is is puffing smoke, you know, it's got a smoke system. So, you know, I'm behind him and the smoke's coming by and it's like I'm, you know, and I I don't want to glorify the the, the combat side of it, but I'm just saying there's that connection to history. Right. And it's like, you can't, you can't fake that. You can't do virtual reality. I mean, that's the real thing right there. Let's talk about your personal experience flying. Did you did you take to flying naturally? But I think the first four hours were frustrating. Yes. <laughs> Which is really funny, the first four hours. I remember I was doing landings, and it was my fourth hour, and I was at this airport called Rialto Airport. It doesn't exist anymore. And, uh, and I looked over at my instructor, and I was just, I, I go, I'm just not getting it. You know, I was just, you know, touching down, bouncing, swerving, you know, and all this. And I'm, it's my fourth hour landing, you know, doing landings in an airplane. But I think we all experience that sort of thing. But then four hours later, I sold it. You know, so it's, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where um, I think everybody's on a different route. Some people it takes, you know, 30 or 40 hours and they get it and some people get it kind of quickly. And I think I was, I would say among my peers, I was probably in the average, I think, you know, eight hours. It was, I think I had 8.3 hours or 8.1 hours, something like that when I soloed. And there's probably no better place in the world to yeah. learn how to fly than, than Southern California because the views are incredible. Yeah. You've got the, the ocean to one side. Yeah. The mountains rising up mm-hmm. on the other side, and you know that high desert. The desert. I loved the desert when I was early on in flying. I always loved going out in the desert. I read a lot about the test flying that took place up at you know Edwards Air Force Base and and you know Rogers Dry Lake and you know and all that stuff. And and so to go up there and see it, and you could actually fly fairly close to the south side of Edwards Air Force Base and not be in the restricted area. Right. So I would go and fly along there, and I would see SR-71s flying, you know, and all sorts of neat airplanes flying air to air. I'd see them, you know, they'd be a couple miles away, but I go, wow, there's a there's a SR-71 flying, and uh, um, so that was a really magical time too to be able to do that. But my first small airplane ride was a in a P-51 Mustang. Had a little jump seat in it, and, and I got to do it. And that was in um, May of 1987, and uh, you know, of course, was was hooked after that because the Mustang is the definitive fighter of World War II. It's the most famous of almost all airplanes in the history of airplanes, right? Then I did everything else. I went and got my license. You know, I solo got my license. Did all the other stuff you do in small airplanes. Built my flight time over the next like, 10 years, and uh, so now I want to fast forward to 1997. So it's 10 years later. I've, I've flown um, you know, a T6 Texan, I've flown a Stearman, I've flown a lot of the other airplanes that would prepare you to fly a Mustang. Um, I had ridden in some other Mustangs, um, but I had not ridden in that Mustang that I had first my first small airplane ride since then. It came time to get checked out in a P-51 Mustang. We had access, uh, there was a guy named Daryl Bond, he had a, um, a, a, they called it a TF, a trainer fighter, a dual controlled P-51 Mustang. So we had access to that airplane. 
So there's a guy named Steve Hinton who is a, a really well-known Warbird pilot, probably the best of the best. And he said, okay, we'll check you out in, in the Mustang. And, I'll, and he said, I'll let you solo my Mustang, which is the, the first must, the first smaller plane I ever went for a flight in, okay, 7715 Charlie. It's now called Wee Willie 2. Um, and so I thought, okay, that's a good deal. So we took Daryl's airplane, and I sat in the front, and Steve sat in the back, but it's dual-controlled. We, we did two flights, and um, on the, after the second flight, he goes, he goes, you're good. He goes, I'll, uh, you can go fly my Mustang. And so his airplane was out on the, on the tarmac, ready to go. This is like everything I've ever wanted in my whole life was to solo a p-51 mustang and and now it's been given i've given the opportunity all i have to do is walk out do a pre-flight on it strap into it and go were you nervous and, yeah i guess you're nervous i mean you know because you you want to perform well you don't want to do anything that embarrasses you you don't want to do anything that will hurt the airplane you don't want to do anything that will kill you you know so sure. those three things are really important um so i i you know walked out and strapped into the airplane and and took off and flew it around and I remember kind of looking at my watch and thinking well you know I guess it's getting about time to go back and land this thing by the way you can't see out the front of it when you land you know <laughs> there's no forward visibility and uh, and I think okay but I had flown the other Mustang from the front seat you know uh, actually earlier that day so come back in and do a normal landing and taxi in and shut down and and drive home and then then I, you know I get home and probably somebody asked me to dump the trash or you know <laughs> take out the trash or do the dishes or whatever, you know. Back so to reality. You go from fighter pilot to, you know, normal guy again. But it's not too often that you can have two flights in the same airplane 10 years apart. I'd only flown in that airplane twice. One, my very first small airplane ride, the second time solo. That's a pretty neat you know, story. So, so it's kind of a fun story. So how, how about like the performance of the Mustang? I mean, what, yeah. what's it like to fly? I think most of us have an idea of maybe what a what a Cessna feels like or a Beechcraft but the Mustang is a completely different ball game yeah uh, I think the the biggest thing with the airplanes of course they do have performance you know uh, but I think the big thing about particularly the World War II airplanes that are, that are like the fighters most of them are tail we call them tail draggers the tail there's a tail wheel there's no nose gear like the B-25 has a nose gear Cessnas most Cessnas have a, a nose gear, so it's tricycle gear. Car guys, everybody can appreciate this because you have a Porsche that's rear engine powered, right? And and it's got all the weight back there. And they talk about it doing some weird things if you're if you're not aware of what's going on, right? Sure, never lift. Uh, yeah, never lift, right? So uh, so in the in the flying world, the tail wheel airplanes versus the, the the tricycle gear, the center of gravity is behind the main landing gear on a tail wheel airplane, and the center of gravity always wants to get in front of you. I mean, it's the heaviest thing, right? So sure. if you start to swerve, it wants to completely swerve. So, so a tail dragger is always the tail wants to get in front of you. Right. So your job is to keep it behind you. Right. And you use the rudder for that and some differential braking if you're really in trouble. Now, you do have some weather vaning effect. You have things like if the wind's straight down the runway, it helps keep things going straight. I mean, there's a lot of that going for you. But so a Mustang is, is a tail dragger. So you have to have that training to get to that level. So that's that one thing. And then, then you add the 1,490 horsepower, or 1,600, depending on where emergency all but, but you add that horsepower to it, and then the value and the history and everything else, and that's your experience. Um, you can't see out the front of these tail draggers 
very well. Um, a Mustang is fairly narrow at the nose, so your peripheral vision is, you know, you see here and here, right? Uh, a, um, a Corsair, fatter, you know, you're farther back, so now you see here and here, you know, so you, you kind of lose a little. So that means like when you taxi, you have to do S-turns. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to look this way and look that way. You kind of hang your head out when you're doing S-turns taxiing out. If you don't, you could run into a whole airplane in front of you. you and not see it. A whole airplane happens. You can go on YouTube right. and watch people running into airplanes and people have been unfortunately killed because the guy was taxiing out and didn't do an S-turn and right. ran into somebody in front of him. You, the people get in front of you, you just can't believe it. You know, it's like, be like driving blind, right? And then, you know, some of the difference between, you know, the Mustang, of course, is it, the Mustang's designed, and I mentioned Porsche before, I think Porsche's a great, we're surrounded by Porsches, right? When you sit in a Porsche, it just feels right. Like everything's kind of in the right spot. It's like you're wearing the car. You're wearing the car, it's in the right spot. And a Mustang is very much like that, where the throttle is, you know, where the stick is, where your feet, you know, you go forward and where the rudder pedals are and the way the instrument panel's set up. And you really feel like you, you wear it. It just feels great. Then you get into an airplane like the Corsair. And the Corsair is a Navy airplane, carrier-based fighter. And you, you get in that airplane and it's just like an awkward truck but it's really cool. It's yeah. a cool, awkward truck. So now, how, what do we compare in the car world to that? I'm sure there's something. Maybe uh, you're- Probably a pre-war Bentley. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So it's it's kind of cantankerous and it's uh, it's it's neat, but it's not ergonomic, you know? And right. so, you know, the, 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 the Corsair, you know, instead of, you know, having your hand way out with the throttle on it, you know, it's kind of back here, you know, like this, and, and you sit really far behind the center of gravity so far behind it that when you look down out of the cockpit, you see the ground. Whereas in a Mustang, you're kind of on the center of gravity. You, you look down, you're, you're looking at the wing because you're right. above the wing. So you, you're way back and then it's got this really long nose and it's got a 2000 horsepower radial engine up there. And I forgot how far it is away from you, but it's, it's really far. I mean, it's, it's like, a hike. Yeah, it, and you're thinking like you're looking up there and it's got this propeller and I think it's about 13 feet, one inch. Some people out there might correct me and say somewhere we're four inch, but it's over 13 feet in diameter. That's a big propeller, right? So it's big Hamilton standard propeller out there. It's big aluminum blades on the early three-bladed Corsair, like the one that, that I'm associated with. And um, you know, you move the throttle and the, the engine reacts to it, but you're like, wow, I mean, it's like in a different area code. I mean, it's really <laughs> far away, you know? It's, it's really something. So, and it's awkward. Uh, the, the, uh, bounce back to the P-51. The P-51 has steerable tailwheel. And so when you're on the ground and you're taxiing, you move the rudder pedals and it steers the tailwheel. It puts pressure on it. it, it it'll steer the airplane to a certain range. Um, the Corsair, the tailwheel is free castering and it has a lock unlock. And so you would unlock it for carrier landing because you're gonna use the hook to land. And then you lock it if you're gonna land on a runway, just a regular runway. And so, so when you're taxiing out, it's unlocked so you can do your S-turns. But there's really not a lot to keep it from swerving off the runway. I mean, you literally, when you're taxiing something like a Corsair, if you look into the cockpit and look down to change a radio frequency to anticipate like, oh, I'm going from ground frequency to tower frequency, and you switch that, you'll, you'll be off in the dirt. I mean, wow. you really have to be paying attention because of the, the, the tendency. So trying to compare that to, you know, cars, you know, it is, you know, you get different different views out of a car, different performance. I'm sure, you know, the high performance cars versus something that you really have to work hard to drive, you know, like on a racetrack, you, you know, some of the slower cars really require a lot to keep your momentum going and all that. Kind of this, the, the, the same between 
Cessna 150 and the P-51 Mustang. What it makes me think of is, you know, a lot of the pre-war cars where you had a magneto and you had to adjust your spark advance mm -hmm. uh, and you had to pressurize your fuel system with the hand yep. pump on the, those little kind, yep. those little tiny things that were engineered out of cars, but they demand your attention. Yeah. You know? And, you, and the airplane has those too, because you know, you have, you're, you're changing altitudes. So, you know, your pressure's changing. So like, you know, you have to rejet a carburetor if you're gonna take your car to the mountains or whatever, you know, unless it's some fancy newer fuel injected, you know, whatever car, but the old cars, right? It changed the jetting. Uh, in an airplane, you can't be changing the jetting when you climb through 4,000 feet or 6,000 feet. So you have a mixture control and you are, and many of them, you're, they do have some that are automatic mixture, but, but a, a lot of the time you're, you're constantly leaning as you go up in altitude, you know, and so you have in a car, you have, let's say, a manual transmission, you know, like a four-speed or whatever and a clutch, or you have an automatic, and the automatic, maybe it's first, second, third, and sometimes like an overdrive, right? Um, in an airplane, that propeller out there is kind of, kind of, if you wanted to think about it, it's kind of like your, your transmission, because as, as you t have different air loads on that propeller, it, like if it's a fixed pitch, which means it's just a solid propeller like the Wright Brothers, you know, it's just a piece of wood you know, or a piece of metal that's, that's ground to, to a blade. If you start diving, the RPM of your engine's gonna go up. Even if you, you, know, you don't put any fuel to it, it's just gonna start going up because the, the, the propeller is driving the engine. So you, know, you start going down, you know, and you start getting that. And then if you pull up, and unless you add more power, if, it's, if you have any more power, you might be at full throttle, but it's gonna start bogging down, right? So then they have on airplanes like the P-51 and the Corsair and all that, T-6, they have a constant speed propeller. So the blades actually change, they're, they're a variable pitch, and they've got a, something called a propeller governor, um, and, and without getting too complicated, but it basically drives off of the engine speed and it senses right when the engine speed starts to, you, you set an RPM, so you set it 2000 RPM and you start diving. Right when you start that dive, that before it even shows on, on, your, on your tachometer, right, uh, RPM gauge, before it even shows on that, the engine starts to sense it, this little thing's spinning around and, and these little weights start going out, like if it start increasing, the centrifugal force pulls them out, that pulls a little valve that allows oil to be ported to one side of the propeller system that changes the pitch and it makes the pitch more coarse so it starts to bog it down. Because if not, if you left it flat, flatter pitch, you're gonna get a lot of RPM, right? So now you're diving and it's starting to pull back, pull back. If you start diving really steep and, you've, and it's, it's gone back as far, it'll try to hold that 2000, try to hold it. Now it's done. It's the, the blades are as coarse as they can go and you're still diving and you're still going steeper and steeper. Now your RPM will start coming up. You know, and the same thing in a climb. It'll try to hold that RPM at 2000, 2000, it'll hold, hold, and you start getting up here. Eventually, the blades have gone as flat as they can for the most high RPM, and it's holding that 2000, and pretty soon now it's 1900, 1800, 1700, and it's falling off because now you're going almost vertical, and you're, you know, you're either gonna have to put more power to it, or it's just gonna sit there and it's gonna govern, it, it's already done governing, it's just gonna drop off. So, interesting thing because the, the, the transmission in your car kind of has that same kind of feel to it. So, sure. well, a lot of differentials there. And what's also cool about that is it's an entirely mechanical and hydraulic 
system. Yeah, yeah. All the, that's that's the other thing when we talked about uh, you know what drew me to the airplanes from the from the cars and motorcycles when I was a kid is all those systems. Everything's very mechanical. You know, it's it, it, and it's it's very advanced. I mean, you think of for that time. You know, it's really interesting. But you know, like that prop governor, right? Somebody had to figure that out. You right. know, and 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 the way the carburetors are. You know, they're pressure carburetors. You know, so so they're not. They don't have a float in there. And you know, and then you know, pressure carburetor typically. You know, you can you can go upside down for a period of time. And you know, the float. It's not. You don't have a gravity issue and all that kind of stuff. And and it's you know, and then there's boost pumps to keep. You mentioned to keep pressure. You know, so for like takeoff, you know, in your old Bentley or whatever, you know, you're pumping up the fuel pressure, right? Well, in, in one of the old airplanes, you know, you, you're turning on a boost pump to, 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 to make sure that you have fuel pressure because they're not gravity feed and that pressure carburetor is going to need it. It's got an engine driven fuel pump that's on all, all the time. It's driven mechanically by the engine. Then you have an electric auxiliary or boost pump. You know, so you know, just get technical. I think people like that kind of stuff. But uh, they do. But uh, by the way, the yeah. the centrifugal governor mm-hmm. mechanism. So that you know that goes back to steam engines. Yeah. Stationary engines. Exactly. Yeah. So they pull that technology from that and and started you know when the first airplanes didn't have those propellers you know right. but then they started going look what we're doing with the you know steam locomotive stuff and all that and they okay well let's let's take some of that technology and solve a problem. I'll tell you what I've never been able to wrap my head around is how they synchronized uh, the guns and the props in mm-hmm. World War I so that yeah. you wouldn't shoot your own prop off. Yeah, yeah. So they supposedly have, you know, the, and I haven't played with one of those mechanisms because they're just not on our, any of our airplanes, but they have basically an interrupter right. so that, you know, the, the, the gun will not fire when the blade is right in front of the gun because you're shooting through the propeller blades, right. right? So they have to shoot in between them. And, and if that gets out of sync, then you end up shooting a bunch of holes in your propeller blade. And you can see pictures of that that's happened. They also have those, if you're, on a, like a B-17 or whatever, and you've got a gun and you're you're sweeping, you know, you're shooting at, you know, uh, at the time an enemy airplane, so it's a Falk Wolf 190 or a Messerschmitt, and you're following it, pop, 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 and then your tail's right there. Well, you can't rely on this 18-year-old kid to to let up off the trigger and not shoot the tail and then start shooting it again as this thing goes behind the airplane. So, so they have interrupters, so it won't shoot when there's part of your airplane in it. At least theoretically, it right? Won't. Yeah, I think sometimes that didn't always work, but uh, interesting though. Imagine you're the 18-year-old ground crewman who has to synchronize the guns on a spad or a, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of responsibility at all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot can go bad in a hurry. One of the cool things about a lot of these World War II aircraft is that they had forced induction, because you're you're flying high, you need the performance, the air is thin. So, like for example, the Mustang, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very critical. So the Mustang has an internal supercharger, and and that's required again when we talked about you know the uh, altitude compensation. But you know, really, an airplane is going to produce its power kind of at sea level. You know, at the at the the highest barometric pressure, right? As you go up, that goes down, and you start getting less and less, and eventually you you run out. You know, you just don't have enough air to get through the the engines too thinly spread out, right? Mm-hmm. So so you have to forced induction, like you mentioned. Um, and so some of the airplanes were turbocharged, some of them were supercharged, some of them were turbocharged and supercharged. So the P fifty one has an internal supercharger. The T six has a supercharger. So it's an advanced trainer. World War two has a supercharger. Kind of neat, right? Um, the uh, Corsair uh, a, a supercharger. Uh, it's basically an impeller at the back of the engine. You know, it's just like you know that big and it's a little impeller and just 
pushes a bunch of air in there. Um, the B-17, the Flying Fortress, uh, that was, each of the engines has an internal supercharger, but then they had a turbocharger. Each of the engines has a, a separate turbocharger with a wastegate at the back and all that. You can see them on our airplane over there. So, um, so that's technology that's from the 30s. Right. And, uh, you know, we get all excited about these, you know, new little cars that have, the, you know, hey, it's turbocharged. You know, well, that's great. They had that in the 30s. You know? yeah. yeah. So much technology trickled back and forth between aviation and, and automobiles, particularly, you know, race technology. Mm -hmm. One thing I want, just want to mention really quickly, none of these aircraft were pressurized. None of the airplanes that we have here are pressurized. The B-29 was pressurized. Yes. But that was like the first, was it not? The first combat aircraft. Yeah, in that direction. Yeah. Right, yeah. So about the Lion Air Museum. So General William Lyon established the museum. In researching General Lyon, what, what I thought was cool was, so when he was born, you still didn't need a license to be a pilot. The formal licensure process had not been established by law yet. And by the time he retired, we'd, we'd been to the moon and back. We had the space shuttle program. Mm -hmm. So that's quite a lifespan. Yes. And, and by the way, I should mention that General Lyon passed away in May of May, yeah. 2020. Yeah. yeah, so probably one of the most interesting people you can ever imagine, General William Lyon. Uh, you know, started off, he started off when, when he was a kid. You know, he was born in 1923, and, and so you know, he was a young guy just as, as World War II was breaking out, and, and he wanted to be a, a Navy pilot. He, that's what was his thing. You know, it was kind of funny. He wanted to be a naval aviator. And uh, he actually went through the process, and it looked like he was you know, Navy ROTC, and it looked like he was going to go that route. And he got to the, the physical. You know, they do basically kind of a flight physical thing. And he, uh, he failed the physical due to a deviated septum. Uh, just a weird situation. So he had it corrected. He had it actually surgically corrected and went back. And would, would you believe that he got the same examiner? And the same examiner failed him again. I think probably because he knew like pre-existing condition kind of thing. So, so he failed him again. So General Lyon was really not a big fan of the Navy after that. <laughs> um, but uh, he ended up becoming a um, a flight instructor, a civilian flight instructor, and he got uh, he got assigned in Arizona to train. Ultimately, uh, uh, ironically naval aviators <laughs> so so he became a flight instructor and, and he did that for a while and then he you know, he was always trying to you know get get something going to where he could go be in the in the military and fly overseas you know world war ii was you know going on and so he um threw a lot of effort on his part but he ended up uh, aligning himself with the ferry command and these are the guys who were were delivering airplanes all over the world. And so he was, and at the time he thought he was really missing out. You know, he thought, gosh, I want to just be assigned. I want to go overseas and I want to just fly in a, a squadron with some, you know, with some group. And, uh, but what it ended up happening is he was flying all these different airplanes and he was getting all this great experience. And that great experience really served him well for many years to come. But so after the war, you know, he was a, he was a service pilot. You know, he didn't really even have the official uh, army wings, would later Air Force wings. He had these, these wings that they basically have an S in them as a service pilot. And, and it's kind of like, you know, he thought it was embarrassing. You know, he'd walk in like, well, you're not one of the real guys, you know, and he, that drove him crazy. But he had to continue to campaign and, and, and finally he became a lieutenant. You know, he got his, his commission, became a lieutenant in the Air Force. And, and, uh, and then he was in the, in the reserves and, uh, and ended up uh, volunteering, going to Korea 
in the reserves, and he flew, uh, you know, full time there. He did, uh, he did like 75 combat missions while he was there. He was flying C-46s and C-47s. We had the C-47 here. Um, and then, uh, you know, meanwhile, working his way up, he had started his home building business in the 50s. Uh, he ultimately became uh, chief of Air Force Reserve. So it's the highest ranking uh, general in the Air Force Reserve. You know, he's the, the top guy. And so he was doing that from uh, um, 74 to 79. Um, and, you know, and he was flying all these type of airplanes all throughout his career, which is just really amazing because a lot of people will only fly one or two airplanes in their, in their military flying career, and that's it. He, he recognized that there wasn't anything local uh, you know, locally here in, in Orange County where, where the, you know, the next generation could come and learn about the greatest generation. And he had been motivated. He was over at the, uh, the American Air Power Museum in, in Great Britain. And uh, he, he, was, he served on their board and he was really motivated by the way they were telling the story. He thought, you know, I really need to do something like that here. So, so he founded Lion Air Museum here. And, uh, and a big, big thing of what he wanted to do is make sure that the school kids got to, to, to meet some of the, the World War II veterans and really, you know, maybe some of that character could, could you know, make it to the, to the next generation. So, so through a lot of his efforts, we were able to do, uh, get with the, the local Newport Mesa Unified School District. Um, they added us as part of their sixth grade curriculum. And so we have field trips. We have the 60-something classes come through the museum every year, and that's all because of General Lyon's vision of wanting to share the stories of the greatest generation. Do you think kids today are still impressed with all this? I mean, they've got all, they've got yeah. a million things yeah. that are bombarding yep. them. You know, yep. electronics. It, it, exactly. It's such a great question, and I thought the same thing. I was really wondering, like, how is this really going to go? Are the kids going to come here and kind of be disrespectful and just because they're, you know, they got their other their own things in life, and you know, this doesn't mean as much to them. And so what we had done is we made these, I call them hero cards, but we made these little baseball cards and uh, we made them for many of our World War II veterans. We thought we'd just give them to them and they could hand them out when they're doing tours and everything. Well, we started, we did our first tours with the, the school groups and I thought I'd find these cards everywhere all over the floor and you know, I wasn't sure what was gonna happen. But what I found is at the very end, we do a 20 minute free period where the kids can just hang out together, they can walk around and they can see everything. They were standing in line to get autographs on the cards. And when they were walking out, they were looking through their cards and they were treating them like, like they were like collector cards. Right. I mean, they really got it. So that's what it, what I, I just, that was like such an awakening to see that like, this is really working. They're getting to learn from these people who are old, you know, I mean, right. in their eyes, right? These are just old guys. But these old guys used to be in their late teens and early 20s, right. and they were doing hero stuff every single day. Yeah, and, when I think and, about a 22-year-old in, as pilot in command of a B-17, mm -hmm. I mean, when I was 22, I, I, I couldn't make it to an 8 a.m. class in college, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I could barely do my own laundry. Exactly. Uh, it's really impressive what those guys did, and there's a reason we call them the greatest generation. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what's fascinating to me is that General Lyon was sharp enough to realize the demand for housing in Southern California after the war, and he got in on the ground floor. Yeah, yeah, that was that was perfect, perfect for him to see that. And he had done that. You know, he had purchased the house up in the Fullerton area, and he watched how the whole process, 
you know, took place. And, and he saw all these, these kind of mistakes that were being made on, you know, customer service and, and, you know, timing and quality and everything. And he goes, well, gosh, I could do better than that. So he and his brother and his dad said, hey, let's, let's get something started here. So they started the, the home building business. And, and the wonderful thing about it, it was like you said, it was in a period where it was just going gangbusters after that. But that made him highly successful so that he could give back to the community. And it was all because of that vision, wanting to do a better job yeah. in the home building. Pretty cool stuff. You know what we haven't talked about yet, Mark, is your personal cars. No. You're, you're kind of a Ford guy, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> so, tell us about that. I was always a car guy, but I was I was really focused on the airplanes and, and so forth. And and so, I, I I guess I was coming out of the car closet, you know, and really, be, you know, I find myself at Cars and Coffee early mornings all the time. I, you know, and then I started going to Pebble Beach, and I really got. And I was always going to races, and I always liked that stuff. But I started looking at it more like, what would I want? Like what collector cars are interesting to me. And back when I was in high school, I remember uh, a friend of mine's dad talking about Ken Miles and the 427 Cobra sure. and you know doing the zero to 100 and back to zero in like you know 13 point something seconds. And I thought, wow, for a car at the time was 20 something years old, it was still beating everything. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So fast forward to you know, a few years back and I started going, well, I don't, I don't have any room in my garage. I got this airplane I got to take care of. I, I just enjoy other people's cars and you know and all that. Next thing I know, I own a, a 427 Cobra. It's one of the, the CSX 4000 series continuation cars. It's an alloy-bodied car, which is a little more rare than that. And I always like to tell people it's it's real. It's just not one of the original 348. Um, and so I, I got that car, and I'll tell you something about that car. It's just like stupid. I mean, there's. It, it's just, it makes no sense. I mean, it's not comfortable. It's, you know, you sweat in it. You're, you're vulnerable. I mean, it's dangerous as all heck. You know, it's you, loud. Yeah, it's loud. A what? I mean, it's really loud, and particularly mine. It's just, like, ludicrous loud. Um, but it is so fun. Yeah. It's just so cool. So, so I, I bought that car and, and um, you know, and enjoy it and everything. And It's and, sitting back here, right? Yeah, it's behind us yeah. back here. And then, um, uh, and, and it's here at the museum right now, which is kind of interesting because uh, what we, we have, we actually have a sign on it that talks about Carroll Shelby because Carroll Shelby was a World War II flight instructor. Right. And he flew B-25s and all this stuff. So he's got an interesting story. He, he, you know, he has two passions in life, flying and cars. And, um, and it's really interesting that, you know, there's that crossover. A lot of people right. don't know that. So kind of use the Shelby Cobra as a way to, to tell that story of another greatest generation guy. I think Carol Shelby's chicken farming overshadows his aviation career. Yeah. Pe- more people know about that because yeah. that was what made him colorful on the racing mm-hmm. circuit. Yeah, yeah, wearing the overalls and the, right. yeah, exactly. And so, so we have that here uh, right now on display. And, and then you asked about the some of the, the other cars, and I, I was I, I used to call myself a car collector with no car collection, and then I was a car collector with a collection of one, and then you know then you start having you know these cars that you like, and you, you know crossing them off the list, and and I th- and, and maybe one's too many, maybe one's perfect, I don't know, but uh, I grew up in the '80s, and uh, one of my my favorite shows, I think so many of us like the Magnum PI, right? And Absolutely. Was, and we watch them in the in the the, the 308, the Ferrari 308. And, and I always thought that was a cool car and then I forgot about it and I was at a Cars and Coffee event a few years back and I was standing there looking at a guy who I have now since become friends with and he had a 1983 
308 red and, and I'm sitting there looking at the car and I start walking around it and he's nowhere to be found uh, and I didn't know who he was at the time and I'm walking around it and I'm, I'm looking at every angle of this thing and I'm going this just makes me feel good looking at it I just oh, yeah. love this thing and then I started reading about them I knew they were like go-karts and they were so fun and you know they weren't crazy price um, they're a little expensive to maintain, but they're you know not too bad, and and you can work on them. You know, I was going to say analog. Uh, yeah. They have a reputation for yeah. being one of the Ferraris that you can turn a wrench on at yeah. home. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Magnum PI. It and was it, a good show. It was a good it's show. A well-produced yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. Great characters. Uh, you know, Tom Selleck. How can you not love Tom Selleck? Yeah, yeah. You it know? was just it was just great. Everything about it. Uh, you know, it's funny. He he wore. You know, he always had the Detroit Tigers ball cap on, but he also occasionally had. It was a. It said Denang VMO two. Right. And ninety nine percent of the people out there don't know what VMO two is, but VMO two is VMO. It's V fixed wing. That's a the naval aviation term. M marine and O observation. And so that was a, a fixed-wing Marine Observation Squadron number two. They flew bird dogs, which is like my 01 bird dog, right? right? So, so anyway, so that ties all this together. I'm looking at this car. I'm just thinking, this is so cool. One of these days, I, I'm going to own one of these. I'm just going to buy one. And, you know, like a year later or something, I, I just... I started, uh, we had a, a visit here. We always have these car clubs come to Lion Air Museum. It's a great place to go when they park in the parking lot and then they come in and enjoy the museum. And uh, we had a 308 group show up. And so I'm out there walking around looking at all the 308s and, and I'm looking in the, the mileage on them. You know, I'm looking in them and they're, they're like 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 and something thousand miles. I'm like, these people drive these things. So I start talking to a couple of the guys, you know, what's it like to own one of these things? And the passion, you know, they just had so much passion. Oh, wow, this is really cool. I think I might, you know, have to move this up on my list. Right. And so I came across one that was really nice and it was, it was manufactured, I'm a very sentimental person, it was manufactured the month of my 16th birthday. And I go, well, that's kind of like the perfect car, it was for sale. Yeah. And so I bought it. And the funny thing is, I bought it on my 50th birthday. Mm-hmm. I didn't wake up that morning to buy it on my 50th birthday. I had looked at it for a couple of weeks, I knew where it was. I just woke up, I was sitting at my desk and I thought, you know what? Might as well do something, you know. So I bought the car, and I have not regretted it one bit. That is such a fun car. I mean, so it's totally different. I have Ford versus Ferrari now, right? Ford <laughs> v Ferrari, you know. But but the 308 is such a, you know, it's it's a, you know kind of high revving. It's like a sewing machine. Once you get up in a certain like 4500, 5500 RPM, it just gets super smooth. Um, you know, the steering wheel is you know kind of like this, like a go kart, and um, and it feels like a go kart when you drive it, and it's so light and 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 nimble and it's just such a fun car and it doesn't make a lot of noise like the Cobra so I can actually drive it to Laguna Beach and have lunch or something so so um, so I, I, I bought that car so now my collection doubled in size you know and I was like wow this is this is nuts you know and way too many but I still had a few cars that I'd always liked and um, um, I always liked E-type Jags sure um, I was, and I think this Porsche thing didn't help. And then the uh, the uh, General uh, Lion's son Bill races Porsches. That didn't help because I was always going to the races and w- watching that. So all of a sudden, I I find myself being like a Porsche guy. I'm trying to learn about Porsches, and I like 356 coupes and and 911s that kind of have a little race inspired. I kind of like that kind of look. And um, and with this going on, I started looking for Porsches, but. At the same time, I had this desire to, um, I always liked the 65 and 66 Shelby GT350. Who doesn't, right? Yeah, right, you know, and, uh, and so I, 
I, I, I was kind of looking around and just not that long ago, I, I came across one that kind of fit the bill. I didn't want like the stock perfect pretty one. I wanted more driver quality. I wanted something a little, I always say race inspired, but like with the with the competition, you know, front bumper on it, you know, roll bar, like, you know, that kind of thing, the torque thrust wheels, you know, American racing wheels, you know, that kind of feel. And this car was that car, you know, I came across it and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, okay. And so I ended up buying that car as well. And so that's the latest edition. So I've got those three, that's it for now. But I someday the, the Porsche, you know, I, I probably, probably a 911. Porsches are super comfortable. Yeah. Um, your GT350, was that kind of a stealth sale? Uh, was, it, was it advertised? Did yeah, yeah. Interesting that you ask. It, it was advertised on and off over a period of time. The guy wasn't really, his heart wasn't really into selling it. But uh, the car was advertised with a, a few key words that sometimes make people shy away. Hmm. And, um, for example, the numbers matching engine wasn't in the car but came with the car. A lot of people don't want to hassle deal with that. Um, right. I found it actually kind of a good thing. Yeah. Um, the engine was running when it came out. He only switched it because he had one ready to go and he was doing a firewall forward kind of restoration on the car and he thought, oh, I'll just stick this in there. And also in the in the record, it, it mentioned something about it being wrecked at one point. Well, people shy away from that. Well, I tracked down and found the guy who knew the guy who wrecked it. Turned out it wasn't a wreck. He, he was Laurel Canyon in the rain near his house and he bumped into a wall. Right. And, and did nothing to the car. I mean, like, you know, like you change one little item and it was no big deal. But it's things like that that make people shy away, right? And I Absolutely. see that on Bring a Trailer all the time where cars are going up and they're going up and, and then you get some comments in there and the, the people, oh, well, you got to watch out for this, you got to watch it. And I think some people miss out on good cars because they get spooked. And so, you know, you got to kind of look at that stuff and, and be willing to risk a little bit. When I went to look at this car, I took a guy who is a GT350 expert with me. And we both drove the car and he crawled all over it and I had done my research and I knew all the history on the car and all that kind of stuff and so it made sense and so I was able to pick it up. But uh, you know, it wasn't one of those high visibility sales. It was right. kind of a, a quiet sale. You know, bidding on bring a trailer is really cheap thrills. Oh. I love doing it. Oh, I do it, yeah. And I bid, I still bid all the time where I'll, I'll know, you know, like, I'll, I'll say, yeah, I'll definitely, I could, I could pay for it up to this point and I would be totally happy because it's worth way more than mm -hmm. that. Um, and so sometimes I'll do it without even a lot of, of, of thought, right. you know, and, and I do the same thing on eBay, you know, yeah. and, you know, especially like some things, certain things I know that have a reserve, you know, like I, I've seen them advertised elsewhere and I know about where they're going to be and I'll run them up to what looks like a pretty big number. Mm -hmm. And I know it's just not going to happen, but if it does great, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, it's fun. It's a, it's a thrill of doing that. And I, I like that buy it now feature on eBay. I don't mess around anymore with stuff. You yeah. know, if it, like if I need a, a part mm -hmm. um, or some kind of piece of memorabilia, I just do it because. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I've, uh, you know, I'm kind of new to this whole, you know, the buying and yeah. buying cars. I'm not a seller, I, that's the funny thing is I, I tend to buy and hold. I'm just not a, I fall in love with stuff. It becomes family members. I know the story. I research the heck out of the car and I call the former owners if I can. And I document everything. And, and so I don't, I'm not one to just, you know, next month it's a new flavor and I get rid of the other car. I don't do that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, you, you talk to a lot of people and I'm not this really wealthy guy. I'm just, you know, your average guy. But, but what I will say is that 
I think a lot of people miss out because they're trying to get a deal. And if they would just go up a little more, they get the car that they want. And in a few years from now, they're not going to care if they spend an extra X amount of dollars on it. It's know? really true. Yeah. You, you should buy the best car you can afford mm-hmm. and, because if you, try to, if you try to go the other direction initially, you're just going to pay more on the back end. Yeah. yeah, you pay more on the back end or you miss out. Yes. You know, you yeah. just don't get it. And then two years later, you're still kind of, wish, ah, I wish I had that car. But by, by then, who cares if you paid an extra X amount of, you know, money for it so you know I don't have any retirement money left but I have these three cars you know? don't worry you're, you won't lose any on those yeah. and that's a great little stable I mean yeah. they're all three they're they're just different enough mm-hmm. and just they're, they're all exciting in their own yeah. way yeah and I, like I love that. every one of them uh, you know I when I'm driving that car I go I think this one's my favorite yeah you know and yeah. then I get in the next one I go oh maybe this one's my favorite I mean I truly love each of those cars because they each bring something to the table have you done a tour yet with the 308 or is that like a rally yeah, type No, I haven't. Event? Um, I, haven't. I think that would be a perfect car for a rally type event. It would be, and I've been invited. It is a comfortable car, yeah. I've, and I'm tall. I mean, I'm at 6'1". I'm not Tom Selleck 6'4", or whatever he was, but uh, um, he had you know, he had the seat rails removed, and they bolted the seat to the floor for him, and his head still stuck. He was really tall torso, um, but I'm pretty comfortable, and I'm used to being hunkered up in something anyway. I kind of like that feel, so so it fits me. So I could go on long cross country in that car and, and wouldn't think much of it, but... Uh, I've gotten invited a few times, just haven't taken any yet. Yeah. It'll happen. Yeah. We we uh, we can't end this without talking about all these incredible Porsches in the building right now. Um, what's the deal? Yeah, I know it seems kind of odd because we have all these World War II airplanes and we have Porsches. So, you know, we're car guys. Uh, there's such a crossover that we want to get as many people to come and learn about the greatest generation about the airplanes. So we started displaying cars, and it started back right when we, we opened. And the first one we did is we had 10 Duesenbergs in here. So can you imagine 10 Duesenbergs all in one spot? And they looked so nice among the airplanes. I mean, the photo ops, just fantastic. So, so we thought, wow, that was really neat. So the next year we did Packards. And then, you know, we started doing these things. We, we did vintage motor racing one year, and, and last year we did Ferraris. And, uh, and so this year we thought, well, what's the, the you know, car culture in Southern California? I mean, Porsche is this iconic. So we decided Porsche made sense. We have a lot of friends like, you know, Jeff Swart with his 906. We had all these great friends around who were willing to, to, to display their cars here. So we picked Porsche as the theme. And what we typically do is, is every, um, we do July 1st through Labor Day. And we have them on display during that time period. Now, with the with the pandemic, you know, lockdowns and so forth, our schedule's been jumbled. So I will say, anybody coming out, they should definitely check ahead to make sure that we are actually open uh, during that time period. But uh, there's probably maybe I'm biased on the whole thing, but no other place where you get this kind of great backdrop, you know, for Porsches, and then you got you know they got this A26 in the background or the DC3 or the B17 and B25 or something. So it's it's really a great great setting for it. Yeah, and the cars that are in here right now, this is kind of a nicely curated assembly here. Um, there are competition cars. There's a a 550, a very special 550. You got the 550. That 550 was uh, driven by uh, Ken Miles at Riverside International Raceway back in 1956. So it's a it's a pretty special car right Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Mark, tell everyone how to find the museum 
And then if you want to share uh, any Instagram accounts or anything sure. like that. Sure. Okay. So Lion Air Museum is typically open seven days a week. We're here on the west side of John Wayne Airport. We're at the airport. Best way to know what's going on here is to follow our social media. Um, so uh, Lion Air Museum, spelled with a Y, L-Y-O-N Air Museum. Uh, Lion Air Museum for Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, if you want to follow mine personally, which I have a lot of stuff at Lion Air Museum, it's, uh, I'm on Instagram and it's uh, Mark R. Foster, so at Mark R. Foster, Mark with a K. Um, between those, you'll kind of know what's going on. Car events and airplane events and all sorts of stuff. So um, definitely follow us and, and keep an eye and make sure you come and visit. Mark Foster, thanks for having us today. I learned a lot. I hope you enjoyed it too. And if you have questions, comments, what you like, what you hate, uh, someone you'd like to see me interview on the show, you can email me at horsepowerheritage at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.